Hey everyone, this is Lynn Bartan, and you are listening to the Apex Hour on KSUU Thunder 91.1. In this show, you get more personal time with the guests who visit Southern Utah University from all over, learning more about their stories and opinions beyond their presentations on stage. We will also give you some new music to listen to and hope to turn you on to some new sounds and new genres. You can find us here every Thursday at 3 p.m. or on the web at seu.edu slash apex. But for now, welcome to this week's show here on Thunder 91.1. Okay, well, we are here in the studio again, and it's summertime at SEU, and I'm so happy to be here. And I am joined with one of our visionary faculty members. Welcome to the studio, Dr. Todd Peterson. Visionary, that's perfect for the radio. Well, it's perfect for you. I find you to be very, very inspiring. And we've collaborated some together and had some great times in the past. And we're here to talk about you and your work and your book that just came out this year, right? Absolutely. This is going to be so much fun. Radio is the coolest. (laughs) I know. I love it. And uh, for those of you listening, this is KSEU Thunder 91.1. And also we record all of our broadcasts for our podcast, which is the Apex Hour. And that's subscribable on iTunes or Google Play or wherever you find your podcasts. So definitely check it out. Subscribe. Leave us a comment. We love to get the feedback. So, okay. Well, I'd like to start today by Dr. Peterson. Tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you get from there to here? I know you've been in Cedar for a while, but Cedar is not your hometown. No, it's not. I'm a Portland kid. I uh, I wasn't born there, but I got there pretty soon after. Uh-huh. Um, raised up in Portland long before it was the dream of the 90s to move there. <laughs> I kind of traversed the 70s and 80s and was in high school um, at that point in time. So that's kind of how... I picked up that vibe and I spent a lot of time um, going to school. I went to college in the Pacific Northwest. I worked for the YMCA for years in the Pacific Northwest uh, between uh, Oregon and up in the Seattle area and the Puget Sound. Fell in love with those places. And then it was a few years after college that I thought about being a writer and maybe being a college professor as well. That's great. Your degrees are all all Northwest. Uh, started in Northwest. So as uh-huh. a film student, that's why I do the film classes on campus now. We work on the screen studies program. Uh, and then I took a look at the film industry, particularly in the late 80s, early 90s, and went, ooh. Yeah. Uh, I might want to do something else. Right. Um, so as a film, film major then, and then uh, what I decided I liked best about filmmaking was the storytelling part. And what felt more in control and maybe more true to me at the time was the writing. So when I was in an undergrad, I wrote one full length and one short film, uh, original screenplays. And I thought that was the way I was going to go. But incrementally, I got more and more interested in fiction writing. I see. Um, Not just doing the script, which sometimes kind of you finish the script and it. It's incomplete. You still need a production on the other end. And right. I wanted to see the storytelling all the way through. So it was in the early 90s. I got really interested in writing. And my favorite story to tell about writing, um, and that's sometimes interesting, I think, when you think about college, is it didn't come from college classes. I was out of school trying to figure out how to maybe work in advertising or something and put those film skills to use. But in the interim, while I was getting my portfolio ready, I was cleaning banks. 
No way. Yeah. At, at night, uh, I was cleaning two banks on Crown Hill in C- Seattle, which is these great old neighborhoods. And when I was done cleaning the bank, I noticed there was a typewriter and a whole bunch of paper in the drive through window. So I would clean the bank as quickly as I could, and then I would spend an hour or so writing, and then I'd move to the next bank and then du- duplicate the same process. So it was probably like – unethical and illegal to be like <laughs> stealing the bag's paper and stuff. But I would write at night in these really, really quiet environments. They were all like Edward Hopper paintings with this weird fluorescent oh. light. And it was really, that was a starting point. I said, I need to figure out a way to do this, not sort of semi on the sly in a bank that I'm supposed to be cleaning. That is a and great all, story. And then I just went back to graduate school do, 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 and that gets us to here. Oh my gosh. That's an amazing story. I, I do later in the show want to ask you a little bit about your process and if, if you've maintained that kind of desire for quiet nighttime writing. Um, but we'll get to that later. I didn't know that you spent so much time working with the YMCA. What was that like? Um, it was my first passion when I was, it's about, I have a 15 year old daughter who's trying to figure out, well, should I go get a job? And 15 years old was when my mom said, you can't sit around the house all summer. Right. Um, so I asked around and I had some friends who were working at the summer camp they went to when they were little kids. Yeah. And I said, that sounds like it's awesome. And they said they have volunteer positions. So it was about 1985. Uh-huh. That I started doing that. And I went there and I fell in love. I, I wasn't that kind of person. I wasn't a big camp kid, but I went, this is amazing and so much better than staying in the city and being bored. Yeah. So I just started going every summers during high school and then it carried forward in college and they kept giving me more responsibilities. And by the end um, of my time working seasonally with um, the YMCA, I got a job offer to be the environmental education director for the San Diego Y at two facilities, one up in the mountain and one right on the beach. And I had this kind of like semi-epiphany that I turned the job down and decided to go to graduate school instead. That's Uh, amazing. And sometimes I wonder, you would have got to live on the beach in San Diego. (laughs) Um, but that was, that was a key moment where Mm -hmm. I had to say, no, I think my passion lies down a different road. And then a year from that point, I was in graduate school and on my way to coming to SUU. That's amazing. But that's one of the reasons I do experiential learning now is I had that experience before school started. And later they saw that stuff on my resume and said, Hey, could you help us? Cause I know you've had some experience doing this. That's a perfect segue. Can you tell us a little bit about your position here at SUU? Well, I'm the director of project-based learning, which a lot of students know is the thing that gets them doing edge projects, Mm -hmm. which is um, our kind of big disruptive innovation, I think, um, in education. And it's not so unique anymore because we're learning like the Cal State system, the SUNY system, the whole province of Ontario now has experiential learning requirements for higher ed. So we've been doing it for eight years, and we love the fact that we sort of got all the learning out of the way early and all those other systems they're still trying to figure it out. Um, but yeah, experiential learning is key. It's the best way um, I've found to learn. Classroom learning is a little bit weird for me. Yeah. I, I am much more of a doer mm-hmm. and I want to learn by trying things out and making mistakes and having somebody coach me. Um, and school kind of doesn't traditionally work that way. But that's different in music, right? Music is such a 
Well, it's a different kind of learning. It's kind of experiential by nature. I mean, yeah. you know, we have a format in our studies where you you always have individual private mm-hmm. lessons. So it's got that really strong mentorship and highly individualized curriculum because every single person yeah. is different in their process. So the arts are really a model for mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. And they always have been. Yeah. Um, and I love that. Well, that reminds me, I, w- I was um, digging into your website, which, by the way, is amazing. And so we want to make sure everybody knows about that. It's toddpeterson.org and Todd with two Ds, T-O-D-D, and then Peterson with all E's, P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N, toddpeterson.org. So you can find out more about Todd there. But I had not read your teaching philosophy, which is on there, and I just thought it was amazing. Amazing. You sort of distill down to, in not too many words, exactly what you, this concept of how you made the transition into experiential learning and um, th- these five mantras. And I don't know if you, I can tell you what they are, and I know you have them up there too, but these mantras for teaching that you use as kind of icons for now become unnecessary. That's fascinating. <laughs> can you tell me a little bit about that? This is a little bit of a throwback to like the Tao Te Ching and a bunch of stuff I studied in college. But um, I think in higher ed in particular, one of the most important things that you can do as a teacher is learn to get out of the way. Right. Students are at this point where I've learned so much. I want to really try things. Mm-hmm. And I think as long as the teacher stands in the way of people trying some stuff out, then it's still mostly about the teacher and it's not really about the student and the student's work. But you also don't want to be so invisible and gone that you're not really doing anything. So it's kind of striking that balance. Um, I kind of think about like bass players, right? Like in a band, like (laughs) you you don't want to be too out front, but really the bass player is controlling everything. Yeah. They just don't seem like they are because there's some guy out front. Exactly. um, So the idea is not to be unnecessary. And I think that's important. It's to become unnecessary. Over time, as you have a relationship with students, by the time they're done, they should just be waving goodbye. And you should be waving goodbye, too, because you're they're in front now. You're not in front. Right. Teach them to teach themselves. Boom. I love it. How about the one that says, give everyone a reason to be in the room? I kind of love that, but I'd love to hear you talk about that a bit more. Um, this is something I think I'm developing. Mm. Um, because we talk a lot now in this online world about... Um, being in the room sometimes is not even about physical. It's like where your attention is. And to be in the room means there's something valuable that has to be going on in the room that keeps you from checking your phone um, and seeing if somebody liked that picture of your kitties on Instagram or any <laughs> of the things that take us outside of the space. So something vital has to be happening that can't happen anywhere else. And that's a lot of what I'm thinking about. So, I mean, if you're reading a book, does that mean I read a book, so now I have to be in the room? Mm-hmm. Like, I think it means people have to come expecting to contribute, expecting to be part of what's going on. Maybe like a really good dinner party where everybody brings something. Um, but they're not there because it's time for class. They're there because something's happening that's important. And I don't know if I always do that. I mean, I do the experiential learning, but I still have my foot in the door back in the English department doing work with our screen studies program. And I always try to make sure that that happens Yeah, and that it, you can't fade, but that's important. Yeah. I keep on laughing. 
Because I've got this crazy Eddie Van Halen picture here on my teaching <laughs> philosophy. <laughs> well, I forgot I did that. Let's. We're going to get in the next segment. We'll take a little musical break here, but we're going to really get deep into you as a as an author and as a writer. You've already mentioned that you started in screenplays, and um, I know you've written poetry and and that storytelling is kind of your uh, maybe home base for where I mean you you have all this background and and this passion as a storyteller. So I'm really looking forward to getting into that. But we have some music to play. And those of you who listen to the program know that we always try to turn you on to different things and then all different genres and all different meanings behind things. And one of the things I was talking with Todd about before he came on the show was, well, because I know he's really into music too. And I said, what, what kind of music do you want to hear? And, um, he, you have a playlist that you designed to go along with your most recent book. That is that. That's sort correct. Of, yeah. Um, the great blog, Large Hearted Boy, does this for all kinds of books and all kinds of writers. I mean, they've done some really great people. Um, Brett Easton Ellis and um, uh, Jasmine Ward, I think, and some other, you know, kind of top tier writers. So it was really fun to be included. But it's so interesting to think about a thing you made and think about it in terms of the music that might fit with it. Sometimes you see these lists, it's like a soundtrack. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's about setting the mood. Sometimes people do the music they listened to while they were writing. And I did a combination of both. I talked a little bit about how I use Bill Frizzell as kind of my background to set my own mood. But a lot of the songs in the playlist um, actually are featured in the book. Oh, cool. So at various times, a character who's kind of a uh, dweeb is listening to <laughs> Panama by Van Halen, and he's listening to old U2 records, and you know just a bunch of kind of standard classic things. But then there's other songs that are commentary. Um, like there's a Mr. Rogers song in there because one of the characters says that rightly so that Mr. Rogers is the greatest person who's ever lived. Oh. And so I, I tr tried to have those songs function in that way. They're either in it or they're commenting on the stuff that happens in the book. Well, so to, to, set, to set the stage, maybe let's start with that Bill Frizzell piece and it's Look Out for Hope. So what about that choice in the playlist and how does that piece uh, move you? Well, I love the I love the song itself, and Frizzell has um, recorded all kinds of versions with all kinds of organizations. Sometimes he's done it um, on a more bluegrass side, and sometimes he's done it more on a jazz side. Sometimes way like on an avant-garde side, but it's a really, really traditional song with a lot of good um, kind of folk melody to it. But it's got great rhythms. But for me and Bill Frizzell, it's about the the tone mm -hmm. he generates with his guitars. Well, cool. Well, I don't know if I have the version that's your favorite, but we'll, let's take a look at Look Out for Hope. Um, this is the Bill Frizzell Band, and that's the name of the album. And Look Out for Hope is the title track. And we'll have a listen here on the Apex Hour, KSUU Thunder 91.1.
Okay, well, welcome back, everyone. We're going to do a little fade out there because we don't want to lose out on the conversation here in the room. Welcome back to the Apex Hour. This is Lynn Vartan. You are listening to KSEU Thunder 91.1. And I am here in the studio with Dr. Todd Peterson. Welcome back. Good to be here. <laughs> well, we were just talking about all different things like websites and comic book writers that you like and all <laughs> kinds of cool stuff. And I'd like to get into your writing. This is one of the things that I'm really excited about and excited for you about. This is a really exciting time in your career, it seems. It really is. And I'm not sure I was ready for it because I was used to just daily biz. Really? And now to be someone with a book out means that you kind of have to keep your head out in the world yeah, and see what's going on and what people are thinking about it, but also to be hooked up with other people yeah, for whom their creative work is out there as well. Because you don't just send the thing out individually. It goes out into a whole ecosystem of other things and books and um, websites and social media and other and other people, there's other people at my press, and it's so cool to be in that constellation instead of working alone. So what you mean by being out there in the world, you're having your ear to the ground, is actually sort of pooling those creative resources together. Mm -hmm. and, and like you said, it's a very solitary kind of work. Yeah, and so when, when you're um, – one of our other faculty here, Elaine Vickers, said the smartest thing recently about there being a difference between being a writer and being an author – and a oh. writer is that really solitary thing where I'm just – where as a writer, you know, you kind of just go into a room. Yeah. And you, you make some things up and work out the language. But when you're an author, you're a person who's selling a book. Right. Um, and it's the best kind of selling because everybody loves to find a book that's right for them. And so when once you get in that relationship, it's now a relationship that automatically demands readers um, and all the other people that are out there um, – so it's not an alone thing. Right. And it can be a really weird transition because a lot of people who choose to be writers enjoy that solitary creative endeavor, but it's inherently collaborative once you become an author. And I think that that's the thing that's new for me and it's really, really exciting. And it's a big shift. Has it scared you or just mostly been exciting? At times, it's really nerve-wracking because yeah. I, I don't know that that's anything that school got me ready for. Right. Again, that's one of the things we're trying to do with experiential learning is get that feeling for what happens when you make something and you have to put it out there and you have to talk about it. Right. It, it seems like it would be easy, but once people start asking you about a book, like the weird question, like, what's your book about? I just, yeah, I just sort of freeze up. I'm like, it's it's about all the words on the 222 <laughs> pages that are in it, but that's never a good answer. Right. So you start you just start having to learn about how to say I made a thing and I need it to be out there in the world, interacting with people, and then I need to start interacting with the people who are interacting with the thing I made, and that's the fun, new, exhilarating, and slightly scary part of all this. Well, let's talk about that treacherous question. The new book is called, and what a great title, It Needs to Look Like We've Tried. It really does need to look that way. Well, yeah, that could be like the banner for life on earth right now, it seems. Yeah. But tell me, what is the book about? I'll go. I'll start big and go little. Yeah. In a big sense, it's about how our lives are interconnected. Um, and a lot of times a novel will take a character and want to focus all the way through right. on one idea. Let's see what happens to this character. Um, I took a little bit of a different approach and I wanted to say, what if we took um, the motion from one character moving through one story and let it just kind of start reappearing in other stories? And so oh. something happens in 
um, the first chapter, and then that chapter seems like it resolves itself and something new picks up. And then in the next chapter, you go, oh, wait a minute. Back in the first chapter, isn't this some of the stuff that started there? So it starts to daisy chain and connect um, as we go all the way through. And so when you get to the end of the book, you're kind of back with the same characters from the beginning. So it comes around... Um, you know, there's all kinds of musical analogies for this, but it comes around kind of like a canon, maybe. Yeah. Um, and the stuff that was in the beginning happens in the end. So it's really a circular structure rather than a linear structure for a book. But that's really pretty nerdy. What it's really about, at least the librarians have said, so it's about failure. It's about oh. people who screw up. It's about people who make a call and about something they're going to do, and then it doesn't work, and they have to go to plan B. Um, and it's about people really who are trying their hardest to do the right thing yeah. and how oftentimes we're thwarted yeah. when we try to do the right thing. And so what I wanted to take that idea was um, do it in all from all these different perspectives. And uh, recently when I was in LA, I had my um, dissertation director who teaches at Cal arts now oh. um, was able to be there with me. And he threw a term into the mix that I love. And I wish I would have known about it when we first started. He said, they're starting to call these kinds of books, mosaic novels. Oh. So again, instead of this big through line, like a great big interstate highway that's like in War and Peace that just drives you, Mm -hmm. the mosaic novel is built out of all these little pieces that build up into one big sort of overall effect. And so that's really what it's about. But it's about people who blew it. (laughs) So how did you get interested in this particular through line? I mean, failure or trying and not achieving. I mean, that seems... Uh, perhaps daunting or uh, I don't know, a little bit unnerving to really expose yourself to the more it started a lot with a kind of formal study of creativity. Oh, and one of the things you hear over and over again, when people talk about creativity in general, because as far as experiential learning goes, I'm over the creativity center. Mm -hmm. I really wanted to know what the foundations of that were. And a lot of it is about failure, about how you have to try things out you have to kind of watch it fail. You've got to study that failure and then go back and um, try another version of it. Um, and so, I mean, it, there's so many antecedents for this, like practicing an instrument yeah. or becoming good at sports, you know, or any of these kinds of things that people become good at. You don't just do this over and over again. It's a, it's a circle that goes around and around and around. And I thought, I th- I'd love to see if I could try some stories about what that meant because failure is automatically loaded as a negative word. But when you go over into the creativity side, they start saying things like fail faster. Right. Um, you need to get, you need to do whatever you're going to do in your process to get to the failure sooner rather than f- um, keeping it from happening. Mm-hmm. Um, and this may sound like trouble for a teacher. I think school teaches us to do it the wrong way. It it's, School teaches us to be afraid of failure. And so what people don't do in the classroom is maybe risk as much as they need. So there's never any big triumphs because nobody's really putting it on the line. Right. Because they're worried about getting an F in the class and losing a scholarship, et cetera, et cetera. I wish there was a way that we could valorize failure. And that's a lot about what this book was about for me. It was an exercise to say, because I think the book is still hopeful. That's why the Frizzell song, Look Out for Hope. Yeah. Um, but hope can be cheesy, and I wanted to try to write this in a way that hope wouldn't be cheesy. Yeah. That it would be like hope uh, Hope is that thing that's like, I know I might be screwing up, but I think I'll probably get somewhere with it anyway. And right. I think maybe we'll be, you know, okay. It's right. a little Bob Marley in there, but yeah. everything's going to be all right. Yeah. Um, but maybe not right now. Yeah. And if people can read a story like that and then learn to think about failure that way, Maybe we'll all be braver. 
I think that's just an amazing concept. I mean, as a musician, we definitely know that. I mean, when we're practicing, wrong notes or mistakes are completely inevitable. I mean, that's the only way you know that you need to do more is from right. those mistakes. And then also just in our day-to-day -day life, I find that when I when I find myself most fearful is when I I don't want to make a mistake and let down my family or my parents or my this or my that, you know, and and mm -hmm. so then you you don't take chances as much. Whereas if you can have that feeling and some of the most free times in my life where I've just taken chances to do whatever and just know, well, if it's not the best thing, I can just get myself out of it or figure it out. So I think you've really hit on something that's absolutely essential and perhaps missing from society right now. I worry so much that, that myself, my family, my students, they'll all think that their failures are unrecoverable. Mm -hmm. And that's the trick to everything. It's not yeah. when you take a step back and you look at what happened and you say, what just went down? Yeah. And if you're really smart about being able to analyze what, what, what went quote unquote wrong, then maybe you'll get to that point of saying, oh, okay, I, I learned something really important. My wife's uncle said once, actually, he came down here and gave a talk. It was really cool a few years ago. He says, you're going to learn more from one spectacular failure than from a hundred mediocre successes. Yeah. And if we could get that mantra going, I mean, everybody would be unstoppable. In your writing of this book, uh, It Needs to Look Like We Tried, did you come across or, or have you implemented any tools in your day-to-day -day life as a teacher, as a parent, as a friend? Uh, to combat this, or is it just being willing to talk about it? Have you have you found any magic um, pills, so to speak? Um, I wish you, there was a video in here right now because I'm just looking at the ceiling, <laughs> figuring out how to say this the right way. Um, around my house, um, I think that everybody is really sick of me talking about failure because I've tried <laughs> to open the, the floodgates on this and talk about how valuable failure is and how important it is to iterate the things that we try. Um, so I, I may have sort of used up all of my energy pills for talking about failure at home. Um, but mostly it's about to open the conversation and to show some stories of people for whom the failure did not kill them. Right. Um, but what I've been able to implement personally – May, and, and maybe I'm doing it a higher percentage of the time, but not perfectly, is to, is to let myself address imperfection. Oh, I love and that. And to say, I mean, there's that old joke of like, let's leave an error in here so the gods won't be angry. I think that that is really important wisdom to say when you're tr striving for, for, for perfection, it's just not going to be there. Right. It never will be. And it's okay to go after it. And it's okay to have high standards with your work as a professional, but you got to just go look. It might be a waste of everybody's time to look for perfection. You should be moving on to other awesome things. Right, right. Um, and uh, a guy that I really like, Questlove, uh, drummer for The Roots, has been saying that as well. It's like, hey, sometimes you have really great nights and sometimes you don't have really good nights. You can really dwell on neither, yes. your successes or your failures, because guess what? You're going to have to go in the club and do another night. Yeah, and move on to the next performance. I, yeah. That's so, so, so true. Well, speaking of music, that, that um, is a great segue to the next song uh, from the playlist by the Talking Heads. Yes. <laughs> Burning Down the House, which, I mean, that's a failure in and of itself. But talk about why Burning Down the House uh, made it to the playlist. 
Um, there's a, a storyline in the middle where something terrible happens. I won't tell you because spoiler spoilers, right? <laughs> um, but after the super terrible thing happens, the narrator who'd been watching the whole thing unfold, uh, has finally packed up all the trucks and is driving away from the scene of this terrible, terrible thing. It was really tragic. Everybody was really depressed about what happened. And he was in one of these rental cars and he turned on the Sirius radio. Um, and he was going through channels. Um, and he'd gotten it to a station that he liked, and he was listening to the song. And the next song that came on was the Talking Heads burning down the house. <laughs> and when he – because the song kind of comes in with this guitar thing before the really cool drum part that, yeah. that everybody will get to hear. Just this little da 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 uh, when it comes, he's like, I have to get out of traffic because I'm going to start crying. Oh. So he's like, gets out of traffic. He goes over all the lanes and pulls over and all these cars are going past him. And he just lets the song play. That's great. Well, okay. We're talking about the book. It needs to look like it. We tried. And the author is Todd Peterson. And here from the pages of the book is Burning Down the House by Talking Heads. KSUU Thunder 91.1.
Okay, welcome back to the Apex Hour. This is Lynn Vartan, KSUU Thunder 91.1. We are in the studio talking about this awesome book written by one of our faculty members. Dr. Todd Peterson is the author, and the book is titled It Needs to Look Like We Tried. Um, brand new this year. And that song you were listening to was Burning Down the House by the Talking Heads. And you were telling me during the break that, um, that there were other lyrics in that song that have to do with the book about televisions and things? Yeah, that the line uh, um, about you don't know what to expect staring into the TV set. I should have it in front of me. But that, <laughs> that whole idea, when we're in such a mediated culture right now and the talking heads really anticipated what that was going to mean. Like, I, I don't even know if we even know anymore what the TV is supposed to be telling us about what's going on. Right. So I wanted to just let that song for people who knew what was going on, kind of unlock some other levels of being able to think. Because the whole center part of the book is about television, reality television, oh. and how maybe reality television is a little bit, well, obviously it's more fake than right. it is real, and how we might be in a part in our time in our culture, you know, having a reality television star as a president, not understanding anymore what's real and what's not real and what's um, – What's a media event and what's not a media event? It's hard to tell. I mean, my sister and I uh, famously watched some reality TV together, and I, I'm the one saying, how can they do that? And she just always just rolls her eyes, storyline, storyline, you know? <laughs> yeah, the section that that comes from is a whole chapter called Unscripted. Oh, perfect. That's perfect. Yeah. Well, it, can you tell me a little bit, for those who may not be aware of your style or who may be listening and going like, I want to check out this book, Tell me a little bit about how you perceive your style as a writer. Oh, I it's it's so silly to say this, but I'll I'll blame it on you because I'm being interviewed. <laughs> um, I think it's funny. That was one of the things I was shooting for. Well, other people have said that too. They say your satire and your wit comes right through. Oh, that's great because <laughs> it's always such a weird thing to say. I'm very funny. It's like saying that you're pretty or that you you know. Um, uh, you should listen to my band because we're really good. But the quotes say it, um, so you, the quotes you do can say it. Say but it. that's what I was shooting for: is I wanted to deal with some pretty significant and serious things that happen to people. But um, for me, I like to use humor all the time. I mean, I use it in meetings um, to just say, "Hey, everything's getting a little tense right here. Maybe if we laugh a little bit, it could help." I've but been I, in meetings with you where you do that. <laughs> <laughs> it's good. So I should have a, a at least a meter so I can know when to when to dial it in and when to pull it off. But one of my um, undergraduate professors um, said in a book once, if you can't see the funny side of something, you probably aren't seeing all the sides of it. Oh. Um, and which means you're seeing it in an incomplete way. So I was shooting for funny. Um, and my agent said it in a way that cracked me up. He said, when he was working with me on what the next book needs to be, he says, I want you to do that stuff that's kind of dark, weird, a little bit violent, um, and with some criminality, but not necessarily the police. <laughs> so I, I guess that's sort of an objective sense of what I was doing. Um, I'm a really big fan of the Coen brothers, really top to bottom, everything that they do. And I really I owe a lot to them because I've, I've always liked their work. And that when I'm shooting to try to imitate something, it's that sense of 
of sort of weird, ludicrous stuff that happens in Fargo, for example. Perfect. Um, or um, even some of the commentary stuff like they do in Hail Caesar, which is this really kind of ridiculous movie, right. but it's also really very accurately about what the studio system in Hollywood was like. And right. so that's what I was trying to do when I duplicated what's going on in, for example, educational television for children um, <laughs> in the center section of that. So I, I try to be funny and I try – um, I try to think a lot about quirky and weird details. I'm a really big fan of the photographer Diane Arbus, okay. who's got these really interesting portraits of people who um, maybe aren't at the center of the population. They're kind of off to either side. In some cases, um, there are people with disabilities. In some cases, they're just poor folks um, who um, are kind of struggling together. But she always did these portraits of, with dignity of these kind of strange and quirky individuals. Mm, um, instead of really focusing on how grotesque they are, she really focused on how human they were, even though the pictures themselves look weird. And that's something I try to do in the work as well, to say, here's regular stuff going on, but it might look a little bit weirder and less normal than we think normal is. And what's the photographer's name again? Diane Arbus. And Arbus is A R B U S. A R B U S. The S U you share at library has a very wonderful book oh, really? uh, of her photographs. Um, and you might have to race me because I might want to go recheck it back out again. <laughs> cool. Well, to construct a story of this complexity, how how does the organizational process work? I mean, especially with it being this kind of mosaic novel, mm. as as you were saying, um, is there a process to the organization? Can you let us in a little bit about how that process unfolds? My my process is a little bit wacky compared to what sometimes you learn in a creative writing class. You'll hear this kind of mystic talk about don't talk about your writing because you'll let your creative sacred fire uh, right, loose. Right. And I'm the opposite of that. I'm okay, a big good. talker. <laughs> um, I like to spitball. I like to brainstorm ideas with other people. Um, and so one of my co-conspirators, a real close co-conspirator is my wife. She's really sharp. She um, is an audiobook addict. I think she has like the – You've listened to more audiobooks than anyone badge from Audible. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> from all the work. So I, I like to say, hey, what if we did this? Or what if I did that? And what if this is going on? And what if I, you know, all these kinds of things. And then we end up talking it through. And she's got a really great sense and a good way of challenging me of saying, no, that would just really be terrible. Don't ever do that. Or I just heard that in another book, so don't do it now. Mm -hmm. um, and so we go back and forth. And then um, once I feel like it's kind of cohering, Mm -hmm. That's when I move into that kind of more private writing I see. section. But I find that if I'm not talking, writing moves too slowly oh. to have these ideas and it's not as associative. But so I like to let stuff start with a conversation. And for that, I need other people. And then they'll give me their input and their ideas. And then I feel like it's the creativity is moving outside my head out into the world. And then I can sort of gather it back up and then go sit down and try to write a coherent story out of that. Oh, that's um, cool. There's a lot of other things I'm sure that are, I'm sure that are happening, you know, a little bit underneath the surface layer. But that's really how I approach um, oh. things. And then, and then there's all these processes too when you move from writer to author, where I got input back from my editor, right. I get input back from my agent. My agent had me rewrite like a third of it. Oh wow! To sort of get things tightened and to make some more connections. So each one of those interactions with other people was another way of collaborating. Um, wow. All the way up to collaborating with my publicist saying, okay, now that this book is done, let's figure out how 
to create lines of connection with other people. So okay. that that's the process kind of from, from the, the small personal to the public. And going back to those days cleaning the banks and writing on the paper where you were describing this really uh, beautiful uh, scene with this certain kind of light in the middle of the night and all that, is is that what you seek now in your writing or is it more a catch where catch can? I still say it's the ideal. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I... I love an environment that's picturesque and just so. Um, but being a father who's busy at work too, now that doesn't happen anymore. And so uh, I guess I've tried to train myself to be able to function in the chaos. Um, while I was trying to figure out what to do, I read an article about Wynton Marsalis. Oh, and yeah. the interviewer had gone into his apartment in New York, and it was full of people, teenagers, people coming and going from sports, and they said that Wynton was in the corner composing on the piano in the middle of all that. Yeah. And someone asked him how he did that, and he just looked at him and said, I have to. Right. And so um, that that works really great. Some of the purity that I get right now is because my wife years ago bought me a set of really nice bowie Bose noise canceling headphones. Oh yeah! And the first time I flipped that switch on, and the whole world went, whoom. yeah. I'm like, oh, this is great. I, I can write. So a lot of times, it's now just setting an audio stage right, for myself, right. and then, and then working. And this isn't to say that I hate the people around me. Of course, right. um, they're wonderful. But part part of kind of gaining that that place to work is to have a a space that feels controlled and um, in balance. Mm -hmm. And then from there, I think the work can come from. Um, But if I had a, if I could buy a bank, I'd buy a bank and I'd sit in that window. (laughs) That's awesome. Do you have specific times of day that are more, tend to be more fertile for you for writing? Um, When I need to write new stuff or stuff that may be more lyrical Mm -hmm. or more about the language, I like to do it when I'm almost when I'm really sleepy. Mm. So I think that, um, the sentry that's up around that kind of says, don't say stuff that's stupid or weird. That sentry kind of gets a little tired and then oh, I can, wow. and I can get around that, that kind of thinking. Some of the stuff that I have to do that's organizational, I have to do when I am sharp and awake. Like right. I can't like copy edit yeah. when I'm sleepy, then right. mistakes will happen. Um, so I kind of look for those times knowing, Hey, I'm going to do this thing. That's going to be a little bit, maybe psychedelic. I'll, I've I've awakened myself back up from sleep to go right to try to capture that mental state when I do it. It's a little bit like method acting, but maybe not. Maybe well, I, I should. No, it sounds pretty much like it. That's great. Well, thank you for sharing that. I have one more song from the playlist that I'd love to play, and that is by Huey Lewis and the News, <laughs> and it's called "Do You Believe in Love?" Can you tell us a little bit about this significant? significance of that song in the playlist there there is a section of the book when a character says do you believe in love to another character and it came from that thing there was such an innocence to pop music in the 80s where they could get away with that and i have to say i'm not sure that i love the song but i love the chorus of the song and i love that it represents this whole time at least in my memory of life you know being in high school and whatever where the question, do you believe in love, is not cheesy, is not stupid, and it's not ironic. And so when I decided to let that section of the book fly, I just wanted to fully embrace that Huey Lewis moment. And I, for people who don't know the song, you're in for it. This is, this is right out of the 80s. Well, here we go. Huey Lewis in the news. Do you believe in love? 
Okay, welcome back to the Apex Hour. This is Lynn Vartan. This is KSUU Thunder 91.1. And this week on the Apex Hour, we're visited in the studio by Dr. Todd Peterson, our own SEU faculty member and also author who has a brand new book out. The book's title is It Needs to Look Like We Tried, described as dark, comic, a little bit of criminality, some fun, but also failure. That's right. And, and no police. <laughs> and no police. Um, if you're interested in Todd's work, you can definitely check out his website. Again, it's a great website with all kinds of interesting things, including the Super Friends Initiative. I need to get a Super Friends of you. Oh, I would I. love that. I'm going to work on that. Tell our audience what that means. A few years ago, I decided to just start drawing some people on campus as if they were superheroes. Oh, my God. I love it. Um, and so the big <laughs> thrill was I was up at the state capitol when I finished the one of President Wyatt as Captain America. And anybody who knows him knows how much he loves American history. That's amazing. And I revealed it on my iPad to him. And you could see that he was so thrilled and wanted to maintain some decorum because, like, all the legislators were, legislators were there. So I've worked through some friends and some family um, to do that. I, uh, but it's really fun, and I called it the the um, Super Friends Initiative. And uh, I really need to pick that up. It's a fun thing to do. Well, it's really fun. And it's on the website. And again, the website is toddpeterson.org, T-O-D-D, and then all E's in Peterson, P-E-T-E-R-S-E-N, toddpeterson.org. And again, the newest book is titled, It Needs to Look Like We Tried. Well, we have one last question that we always ask on the show. It's kind of become a crowd favorite. And that is, what's turning you on this week? And it could be anything. It could be movie. It could be TV. It could be anything you like. But we really love to give our listeners a little insight to what's turning you on these days. Well, I won't talk about this really nice um, uh, artichoke dip that I've been really into lately. And I'll <laughs> skip over to a book I just finished. It's called Creative Quest. And it's by Questlove, the drummer for The Roots, DJ, um, uh, f- foodie. Um, and and I had no idea that he was even a writer of books, and he's done more than one. And this is his most recent exploration of creativity, how it works, um, and his best um, sort of case studies about creativity as it's happened. I mean, in some cases, he's talking about working with D'Angelo, and in some cases, he's talking about Joseph Brodke's um, graduation address to um, college students saying, go out and get bored because that's the only way that you'll ever do anything interesting is to feel boredom and try to escape it. Oh, that's cool. And it's such a great book. It's it's not – it's deep, but it's not heavy. Great. And you get a real chance to see how Questlove's mind works. And plus, he talks all about – um, roots albums, hip hop, um, record production, and just working for people for all the 20 years or more that he's been uh, a musician. And he also talks about DJing, which I didn't know much about. Oh. And it was really cool. So I would recommend that. It's a great read. Um, and um, I think it will be energizing for people who do creative things in their life. It's been on my list for a while. And again, that's Questlove. And the title, one more time? Creative Quest. Creative Quest. And it's what got a great Questlove title. on the thing with his hair comb sticking yeah. right out. So you'll, if you know Questlove, you'll find the book of it right away. Awesome. Well, Todd, thank you so much for spending the time and joining me today on the Apex Hour. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, we'll be back in a couple of weeks and this podcast will show up. Don't forget to subscribe, leave us a little message or some kind of review so we can get more people turned on. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for listening to the Apex Hour here on KSUU Thunder 91.1. 
Come find us again next Thursday at 3 p.m. for more conversations with the visiting guests at Southern Utah University and new music to discover for your next playlist. And in the meantime, we would love to see you at our events on campus. To find out more, check out suu.edu slash apex. Until next week, this is Lynn Vartan saying goodbye from the Apex Hour here on Thunder 91.1.